Welcome everyone to the Optimal Performance Podcast. My name is Sean McCormick. I'm a life coach, performance coach, wellness entrepreneur, and it's my pleasure to bring to you every single week the world's leaders in the field of performance so that you can live your life at its most optimal level. Plus, cutting edge ideas so that you can stay ahead of the curve in an ever-changing world. Let's dig right in. This episode of the OPP is brought to you by Element. Element is a sugar-free, keto-friendly electrolyte drink mix. Now, this is, for me, falls into the category of things that you don't realize that you really need. We all know that uh, the food that we eat is now nutriently depleted, so we're not getting the same electrolytes and minerals that we normally do. And if you drink tap water, you're not getting electrolytes in your water. And so where can you get them? Well, that's where Element comes in. Recently, just recorded an episode with Rob Wolf where we talk specifically about this Overhydration. Most of us, a lot of us, are especially high-performing people who are athletic and exercise a lot, are drinking a whole bunch of water but not getting enough electrolytes. And Element is like the most flavorful, most effective way to get those electrolytes into your body. So if you've been paleo or keto for a while and you feel tired or you feel like you can't reach that next gear in your performance, whether it's in your work or playing with your kids or in exercise, that's where element comes in and you can go get a sample pack of seven amazing flavors like citrus salt like raspberry salt or even the unflavored it's awesome go to drinklmnt.com forward slash op pay the five dollars for shipping and get a sample pack of seven different flavors they're amazing honestly i can't wait to relate this episode with rob because we dive into really the the drastic need what is also the connection between being uh, electrolyte depleted and having to wake up in to pee in the middle of the night amazing amazing science and a really incredible product that is now becoming one of my most favorite supplements. And uh, I don't say that lightly. So go to drink element. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash OP. Pay the five bucks and get a sample pack of seven. And um, tell them I sent you. Well, they'll know. <laughs> On today's episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast, we are joined by Andrew Steele. He's a scientist, a writer, and he's based in London. He is a has a PhD in physics and he's the author of Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. Um, Andrew is a, a obviously a really smart guy and he dove really deeply into the aging and anti-aging fields. And uh, the title of the book really does kind of tell the story. How can we age? How can we get older without aging? And in this episode, we talk about how the risk of death averages uh, ev- uh, doubles every seven years. We talk about what are the most reliable tests for measuring your aging. We talk about the five most important things for anti-aging. We talk about the shocking idea of programming cells back into pluripotent cells. That means like the original cells, these sort of stem cells that can be made into anything. We talk about the distinction between anti-aging, age reversal, transhumanism. We talk about death. Just a really cool episode because this is uh, obviously an, an increasingly uh, important topic for people in um uh, biohacking field and you know we're in a global crisis so we're t- talking talking about death and thinking about death and i really love the way that he thinks about this uh the, the, the science he's very science-based and so he doesn't take anything for granted he wants to see the details and so i ask him some very very hard questions and really challenge him and uh his answers are graceful and elegant and very interesting. So I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. If you love this episode, would you please, would you kindly do me a favor, write me a review on uh, wherever you listen to this episode, wherever you listen to this podcast. Uh, if, if, if I really appreciate you sharing this information with people that you think would find it interesting. That's the way this grows from word of mouth. I know that there is a a large group of you, thousands of you, thousands and thousands of you that that listen every single week, and I so appreciate that. If you would be so kind as to share this with people that you think would find it interesting, I'd really appreciate that. Uh, If we've connected on Instagram, which is my most active platform, that's real Sean McCormick, um, say what's up. Um, listen to this, um, take a picture of you listening of you, uh, you know, take a little screenshot and then just tag me in it and just say, Hey, I've been listening to, 
um, Sean McCormick from the OPP, and this is the this is the episode. Uh, love the feedback, love the engagement. I'm really responsive. So you want to connect with me personally? Instagram is the best way to do it. Um, you can find uh, Andrew's book just where all books are sold. It's called Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. Really excited to bring this to you. This is like core biohacking longevity stuff. And uh, I know you're going to get a lot out of this episode. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Professor Andrew Steele. So I would love to start with this. I love I love this, this topic of conversation. Um, Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. Something that, that I am really fascinated by. Um, there's a lot of information. There's, there's an increasing amount of information coming out. And um, based on the reviews, um, you've, you've done a, it sounds like you've done a really good job of, of explaining it to people uh, and, and laid out um, where we're at in this, in this endeavor to, to live longer and live healthier. Um, I would love to start by hearing just a little bit about your background. How is it that you became um, so, so entrenched and fascinated with, uh, with longevity? Yeah, I've got quite an interesting background in that respect because I actually started out as a physicist. My PhD, even I got as far as that, I did a PhD in magnetism at Oxford. And toward the end of that PhD, I started reading a bit about a bit more about aging and longevity. And I often tell people I changed career because of a graph. And that is slightly glib, but it's only slightly. Um, and the reason for that is I, I, I looked at the graph of uh, your mortality risk with time as a human being. And so if you look at this graph, um, it's obviously it's a bit of a morbid graph. It, it basically shows that your risk of death doubles every seven or eight years. So I'm in my 30s. That means my risk of death every year is somewhere in the region of one in a thousand. And it's worth um, sort of thinking about what that means. Like if, if, if those odds were to continue into the indefinite future i'd live into my thousand and thirties on average so clearly the human body is capable in youth of you know maintaining itself at an incredible level of fitness an incredible unlikelihood of dying you know for those first few decades of life but the problem is because it starts doubling every seven or eight years it can start out fairly small and then end up getting very big very quickly so if you make it to your 65th birthday you've got about a one percent chance of not making it to 66 if you make it to 80 you've got about a five percent chance of dying that year and if you're lucky enough to live into your 90s then your odds of death in any one of those years are about one in six that's sort of life and death at the roll of a dice and obviously as a human that's quite a scary thing you know you've got this sort of terrifying wall of mortality bearing down upon all of us that's going to sort of kick in in our 60s or 70s or 80s depending um, but as a scientist, you look at that graph and you think there must be something underlying this process. You know, you've got this incredible increase in the risk of cancer and the risk of heart disease and the risk of dementia and the risk of stretch, you know, just the risk of everything. Your frailty goes up. Every part of your body just starts falling apart pretty much on a schedule. And so what that suggests is that there must be some process that's driving this degeneration, that's driving the sort of simultaneity of this going on. And then I started reading more about the sort of results in aging and longevity, the fact that we can slow these things down in the lab quite reliably with loads of different interventions. And actually, in the sort of 10 years since I started thinking about this stuff, the number of results that's been coming in has just been, you know, it's been getting faster and faster. We've just got dozens of different ways now that we can slow and reverse the aging process in cells and animals in the lab. And we're just starting human trials. So during that whole time, I've just been really, really excited watching this whole field come on. And I decided at that point, you know, I had to get into biology. I had to understand, you know, what the, what the fuss was about. Maybe there was something that as a physicist I'd missed. You know, there was some complexity. There was some reason that biologists weren't like diving into this as the most important. Uh, I call it in the book, the most important humanitarian challenge of our time, because yeah. just the vast majority of people are killed ultimately by aging because they're killed by the cancer. They're killed by heart disease. They're killed by all of these diseases that strike in late life. So. I was really compelled. I went into biology um, and the more biology I learned, you know, I didn't find anything that discredited this idea. Basically, I found more and more exciting results. But also I found uh, as I spoke to biologists, I'd speak to, you know, really talented biologists that I have great degrees from great universities or I'd speak to my wife. Actually, she's a doctor. And when I first talked to her about this, stuff, she thought I was crazy. And that's because they don't get lectures on aging biology in a normal biology degree or in a normal medical degree. And that means that they don't approach aging in this way. They don't approach it as a sort of treatable medical problem. They think about it as something that's natural, a sort of process of wearing out that isn't worthy of much discussion. And so the reason I ended up writing a book was because, you know, I saw this huge promise and I saw this massive lack of recognition within science, within the public, within policymakers. And I just thought, I've got to try and get the word out there. So that's, I guess, what I'm doing now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's cool. I like I like the, the idea of that, which is, you know, you were looking for ways to be to discredit what you were reading. <laughs> I think that's that's like pure scientific endeavor, right? Is to like prove me wrong. How what can I find that can debunk this? And that level of research um, um, from that angle, I think, is uh, resonates with people. It's like I, I I could be wrong, but what I'm seeing supports this. I'm just gonna keep I'm just gonna keep digging and digging and digging. Um, well, 
so many different cool questions. The, the, the question that, that I'd like to start with is based on what you've been able to surmise from your research, um, what are the most reliable um, tests uh, for, for actual aging? Are you a telomere guy? Are you a senescent cell guy? Like what, what, based on what you know, what's the best way to measure aging? This really runs the gamut. And I think sort of the most sciencey sounding one is the epigenetic clocks. This idea that if you um, if you look at the epigenetic marks on somebody's DNA, and in particular, the most studied one is methylation. These are little chemicals that basically attach to all different locations on your genome. And what they do is they instruct the genome how to behave in particular cells at particular times. So every cell in your body has this two meters of DNA. It's the same uh, six billion or so letters. And Nonetheless, the, you know, these cells behave wildly differently. We've got blood cells, we've got brain cells, we've got muscle cells, we've got eye cells, all of which fulfill remarkably different functions. And although they've got a few core similarities, like they've all got a cell membrane, they've all got a nucleus or apart from the blood cells, you know, there, there are various different things that they do really, really differently. Like neurons express particular proteins, muscles express particular proteins that allow them to fulfill that function. And it's the epigenetics, these marks on the DNA that basically say, read this bit, ignore this bit and allow the cells to fulfill all those different things and also to fulfill the functions they need at different times in your life as well because obviously a muscle cell you know when you're exercising is doing a very different thing to a muscle cell when you've just had a meal is doing a very different thing to a muscle cell when you're asleep and so on and so on so a lot of this is controlled by these epigenetic marks and what people found as they were studying them is that you could actually use them to use these marks to build a sort of scarily accurate epigenetic clock and you can use uh, the original clock use just 353 sites so obviously these things happen in you know, millions and millions of places across your genome and yet we with just 300 of them, you can predict someone's age to within about four or five years. And more morbidly, you can predict uh, how likely they are to die. So if you've got an epigenetic age that's advanced compared to your chronological age and you know, how long ago you were born, then what that suggests is you're likely to be less healthy and you're likely to die sooner. And obviously, the, the sort of mercifully, the converse is also true. So if your epigenetic age is younger than your biological, than your sorry, sorry, your biological age, therefore is long, younger than your chronological age, then you're probably going to be healthier and live, live, live a little bit longer in good health, at least statistically speaking. And these clocks have been refined. They're getting better and better at predicting the likelihood of disease and stuff like that. So I think ultimately, maybe not ultimately, they're they're certainly the strongest contender for a sort of scientific blood test style aging predictor that we've got now. That said, um, there's some really serious competition from like the far more sort of basic sounding side. Like a lot of these um, aging tests do things like they measure your grip strength or they measure uh, the amount of time you can stand on one leg. So sort of balance and that sort of thing. And what I think you find is that actually in terms of predicting your frailty, in terms of predicting how likely you are to die, those those sort of measures do really well as well. Um, so I think there are all kinds of different things you could do. I think epigenetic clocks probably give you the, the best single number. Um, but actually, maybe things like grip strength and balance, you know, they're more related to the tasks that we actually want to do in everyday life. Like, why do I care about getting old? Obviously, I care about getting sick, but I also care about being able to get around the house and, you know, maybe play with my grandkids or whatever it is that, you know, my aspirations at that age. So, yeah, I, I really think there's a whole variety of different things that work. And then um, the sort of the corollary of all of this is that although these are ways of sort of assigning a single number to your biological age, I guess that ultimately that might not be the way that we play this mm. because it might be that, uh, for example, the accumulation of senescent cells, it's an aspect of aging. It's called a hallmark of aging. And so, you know, maybe you, you'll go to your doctor. They'll What they want to do is measure your burden of senescent cells, maybe not even in your whole body. Maybe they'll look in specific tissues Then they might give you some drugs to get rid of those senescent cells. And so I think although, you know, now we think of age as being a single number, I think as we slowly start to uh, learn to treat certain aspects of the aging process, it's going to become a whole variety numbers it's going to be how how many senescent cells do you have how long are your telomeres and then even drill down further you know how many senescent cells do you have in your liver versus your brain how many mm. you know how long are your telomeres and your blood versus your muscles and we're gonna you know hopefully at some point and this isn't something that's going to happen in the next five years you know this is something that's sort of in the further future but we're going to be tailoring those treatments for aging toward the aspects of aging that you're you know effectively suffering from the most right oh that's cool that i i love that it yeah, that's very cool. So as it grows in the in our ability to test these things with the uh, epigenetic clocks, um, that and and tell me if I've got this right, that someday in the future, hopefully not too far out, maybe maybe ten or fifteen or twenty rather than five or or fifty, is some confluence of tests, right? Um, the science is there, but we can't we haven't quite put it together yet. So it's telomere length, it's epigenetic markers, it's um, you know. Um, fulfilling relationships, grip strength, um, you know, stress factors, cortisol presence, and so forth. Is that kind of right? Like, is that how you see it in the future? Is that it's going to be a whole 
you know, dossier of, of different factors that, that ultimately come out with this, um, with this uh, holistic picture of, of how old we are biologically? Yeah, and I think it's probably not going to be one single age. I think you, you you know you might almost have a senescence age and a telomere age and ah. a, you know ages that all uh, basically vary by the therapies that we have available. Because I think you know what we're going to do is we develop a drug that can kill these senescent cells. We're going to want to remove those senescent cells, and then you know ultimately we're going to want to remove them in the parts of the body where they're causing you the most problems. You know maybe it's in your lungs, maybe it's in your liver, maybe it's in your brain, depending on you know your genetics, you know whether you smoked, for example, or other other aspects of your health history. So I really hope that in the long run, and you know like you say, sort of, you know, whether whether it's 15 years or 20 or 30 years away, we are going to start to be able to tailor these treatments much more toward the actual aspects of aging that are, you know, causing you in particular, uh, you know, cause, putting you at risk of disease or putting you at risk of frailty and so on. Yeah, super cool. When you were deciding how to put this book together, um, doing the research and, and sort of plotting out the different chapters and the different topics that you were going to dive into, I'm curious, uh, I'm, I'm always curious about the process. Um what what made you put together the the book in the way that you did? Like, um, yeah, it's a super broad question, but I think it, it tells a lot about where your mind was at when you were researching this stuff. It's a real challenge, and it was it was a very difficult book to structure because there's just so much, and it's all so interconnected. Um, so you know, for example, we just talked about telomeres and senescent cells. The fact is that the shortening of the telomeres is one of the things that drives cells into senescence. So you know, you've got all these processes that are happening; they're happening at the same time. They're influencing each other. They're sometimes feeding back on themselves. So the way that I did it, like um, I think, I think not just me as an author, but all of us in the aging biology field have been really fortunate uh, to have these these sort of categorizations of the aging process. And the most highly cited one is this paper called The Hallmarks of Aging that came out in 2013. And what that paper does is it groups aging related changes into nine uh, distinct categories. And so therefore, I use that as a sort of framework to try and uh, advise uh, how I structured the books. There are two reasons that that's interesting. First off is because it allows you to break them up into sort of, there's a taxonomy, there's a classification. But secondly, the, these, this classification actually breaks relatively cleanly up into how we're going to treat those different aspects as well. So for example, we keep mentioning senescent cells, that they are a very prominent you know, part of the aging dialogue at the moment. They are one of the hallmarks of aging. And obviously, therefore, the way that you treat them is either to get rid of those senescent cells, or it's to uh, give you, you know, have drugs or treatments that can reduce the effect that they have on the body by dialing down the different chemistry that they secrete anyway so that's a very good sort of logical way to lay out the book and that's how i how i started um but it's just it's just incredibly challenging because you end up trying to i i actually started out by explaining basically each hallmark as a chapter then how we might go about treating that hallmark but it just meant that we had these enormous unwieldy science chapters and i'm very i was very very fortunate to have some incredible editors whose uh, main feedback after my first draft was basically right we're going to completely restructure this and they were <laughs> so what we ended up doing was putting all the sort of causes of aging at the beginning and then putting the ways that we're going to treat those causes in the second part of the book and i think that does make a lot more sense because it sort of lays out all the biology and then it allows you to talk about how you're going to fix it and how all those different fixes relate to each other and my sort of broader writing process was just I, I tried to be as exhaustive as I could be I, I think I read well in my sort of in my um bibliography software I've got something like a thousand papers and I can't promise that I've read every single one of them you know from abstract to the conclusions but I've at least skimmed all of those papers and about 400 references made it into the back of the book and that's not just papers it's things like YouTube videos or articles that I found in the press that sort of go into more depth about particular things that there wasn't space for in the book so I just tried to read absolutely as much as I could and then after that, I just tried to speak to some of the leading experts because the fact is that, or, I mean, for, for starters, I was, you know, began as a physicist, so there might have been bits of biology that I'd missed out, you know, certain, you know, as part of my education. But secondly, even if you are an absolute biology expert, this field is just so broad; it really impacts on every aspect of our cells, of our bodies, of the systems that make us up. And so, what I tried to do is speak to at least one or two scientists from every, you know, working on every particular specialism, so someone on senescent cells, someone working on telomeres, and so on and so on, just to make sure that I'd covered every single base. And what I really found was very useful about that is the scientific literature is often a few years out of date because you know it's the, the time it takes to prepare a paper and get it all the ways it absolutely you know all the uh, t's are crossed i's are dotted everything's ready for publication and often it can take you know months or even years to go through the peer review process because these peer reviewers make uh, you know incredibly stringent demands they might ask for experiments to be redone and so there were a couple of cases where i went and spoke to scientists and they basically said yeah that is what the literature says but actually you know if, if you look at the very most recent papers that you might have missed and some work that we've done that has you know sort of is, is continuing down these lines we can actually overturn some of these more uh, some of these results that are, you know, look a bit more dated now so i think that sort of dual-pronged approach of 
really doing a deep dive into the literature, but then chatting to some experts to make sure that you haven't missed anything. I hope I've been absolutely as thorough as I could be. And I've really tried to be. Um, so that was, that was my approach. I th- and I'm just, I, the, part of my problem as an author is that I'm quite a perfectionist. So I think it, it took me a long time to write. It took me about two years to, you know, from start to finish to write this book. And that's doing it full time. Basically. I did a few other bits and bobs on the side, but I, I quit my postdoc to give myself time to focus on this. And I'm so glad I did because I just, you know, the, this exhaustive process, I don't think I could have done it alongside a full-time science job as well. Yeah, I can't imagine. I can't imagine, especially for for someone who's so data-driven, who's so focused on on, the, on what the data show. You've got to be able to put so many different pieces together and connect so many different dots. Um, I'd love to, to hear a little bit about um, what, what, what was one thing that really surprised you? Like what, what, what was, what was a, um, either a, a marker or uh, an anecdote or a piece of data that when you came across it, just like you had never heard before, it was just like totally shocking or, or counter to what you, what you had assumed previously. I think the thing that's really surprised me and it's, it's the thing in the book that has me like on the one hand most optimistic and on the other hand most baffled by this the occurrence and that is the this idea of rejuvenation by reprogramming cells um, by reprogramming using the the yamanaka factors which are these genes that were discovered uh, in order to reprogram cells from an adult cell so you could take a cell from your skin or something you can reprogram it into uh, what's called a pluripotent state and that's a state that the uh, that these cells normally have they're the stem cells at the very beginning of embryonic development are pluripotent it means they can develop into any cell in the body basically and so that's how Yamanaka discovered them back in 2006. He was looking for this sort of ability to create pluripotent stem cells. But what has subsequently been discovered is that these um, these genes don't just wind back the sort of developmental clock in cells. They also seem to wind back the aging clock. And people have started putting these cells into animals. And uh, the first thing that they did was, you know, they put these uh, genes, sorry, they put the genes into animals and they found that they, well, unfortunately, it basically wipes out the animal. They die very, very quickly. The reason being that it turns the cells in the animal into pluripotent stem cells and this can kill them in sort of a two two pronged way the first prong is that pluripotent stem cells may be incredibly powerful in terms of the cells that they can become but they're absolutely hopeless actually doing stuff like if your heart's heart cells are suddenly replaced by a bunch of pluripotent stem cells they can't beat they can't pump blood and so you're going to die you're going to have some kind of massive organ failure so that's one of the problems the second problem is that if you just inject uh, these inject these genes in and make pluripotent stem cells inside a mouse then you get these things called teratomas they're a kind of cancer that develops from mm-hmm stem cells and they're absolutely grotesque things um they're, they're these ho- sort of horrible matted hair teeth skin sometimes little bits of eyeball or brain because these cells they can develop into anything yeah. and they ha- aren't being given any instructions so they're sure. just sort of randomly differentiating turning into all kinds of disgusting nonsense um and they're actually they're, they're well worth seeking out these tumors i think if you ever find yourself in an anatomical museum you can find these things they were sort of victorian collectibles because nobody really knew what was causing them these horrible little things you know sometimes they've got whole human teeth embedded in them just disgusting deformed they're, they're incredible they're absolutely wow. amazing anyway this is a this has been a very long-winded way of getting to the point that if you just administer these factors continuously the mice have a very bad time of it however scientists uh, gave these genes to mice and uh, they they gave them in such a way that the genes would only be activated when the mice were taking a particular drug and so then they gave that drug intermittently i think they gave it two days a week basically you know two days out of seven and what they found was that was just long enough to sort of give the cells a bit of a spring clean and wind back, actually it wound back the epigenetic clock, which is what we were mentioning earlier, and sort of changed some of the properties of various other parts of the cell, it improved the behavior of the mitochondria, the energy generating part of the cell and that kind of stuff. And uh, basically made the mice biologically younger and healthier. And I'd heard of that result before, but as I sort of dug into it, it's just it's just so incredible that these genes that were discovered for an entirely different purpose we're able to wind back the biological clock inside these cells and therefore inside these whole organisms. And they can do really crazy things. Like, so if you, if you give these, uh, these pluripotency factors to a cell that's a, a cancer cell line in a lab, you can reverse some aspects of that cancer. It seems to sort of put, you know, cells that are in chaos, it seems to sort of restore order to those cells. And I just find this absolutely amazing. Because, you know, I think if you told a scientist in the year 2000, there were, just, there were four genes that you could give to a mouse and as long as you did it intermittently it could wind back many aspects of that mouse's cellular aging and effectively make it biologically mm. younger they just wouldn't have believed you and the reason it makes me so optimistic is because i think we've just been really fortunate that these these genes do happen to do this thing it's like it's it's entirely conceivable from a sort of an abstract theoretical biological perspective i guess that you could come up with some genes that could turn a normal cell into an induced pluripotent stem cell but wouldn't have this sort of wide-ranging effect winding back the biological clock 
But it just so happens that we've stumbled upon these cell, these genes that do do that. And that means we've got the sort of proof of principle. And the reason that the, the, the sort of the, the way that I temper this optimism, I'm not sure this is ready for the human prime time anytime particularly soon, because these are these are powerful genes. You know, you can you get that impression because they can turn a, a regular adult stem, sorry, a regular adult body cell into a stem cell. And you get that because they can reverse this biological clock. And so, you know, just de- deploying these things willy nilly in humans would probably be quite a risky endeavor, particularly because of this risk of cancer, this risk of organ failure. But the fact that it's it's shown us this proof of principle so early on in the process, it demonstrates that this sort of this potential is, you know, locked away inside ourselves, ready to be deployed. And that just makes me really excited. It's just it's just another completely off the wall way that we can reverse the aging process. And even if it doesn't directly lead to a treatment, it just shows us the potential that lies within all of ourselves. And, you know, it's really inspirational for scientists working on this to show us that we can do it this way. And maybe there are other ways that we can do it as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's news on me. I've not heard any of that before. That's that, that, uh, that's really fascinating. I <laughs> mean, here's a quick announcement from one of our sponsors and then we'll jump right back into the episode. This episode of the OPP is brought to you by fume. You can go to fumeessential.com and use the code OPP for 10% off of a really innovative, really interesting essential oil inhaler. Uh, Why would you do that? Why would you inhale essential oils? Is it safe to do that? Yes, it is. And here's why. Quitting smoking, allergies, stress relief, uh, immune boosting, anxiety, congestion, headaches. I'm very critical about the products that I take for sponsors. And also I'm critical about the things that I put into my body and uh, did the research, did the background, connected with the owners from from Fume. And uh, this is really a high quality product that comes from great sources. And I'm not the only person that thinks this way. If you go look at the reviews on fumeessential.com and look at the testimonials, there's 670 reviews. That's a lot of reviews for a product uh, such as this. Uh, I like to use uh, the Fume Essentials inhaler uh, when I'm working. So, you know, I'll uh, use the peppermint as a pre-workout. I really like it. You know, I like this natural stuff that can give me a natural boost when I'm exercising or trying to focus. I like to have something in my fingers when I'm thinking. You know, I just like to fiddle around and having this really elegant little straight inhaler um, that's that's infused with essential oils to just inhale and get a little bit of boost from i actually i really love it i use it all the time i use it every single day so you should check it out there's a lot of reasons uh and a lot of great science that goes into this so go check it out go to fume essentials that's f-u-m essential.com and use the code opp for 10 percent off it's it's worthwhile especially if you're trying to curb habits or create new ones um so check it out okay back to the episode i'm sort of curious about um you know, now knowing what you know and having put together all of these different um, these different variables in the aging process, um, I'm curious about some some vernacular. Um, you know, the word anti aging uh, is mm. popular. You know, the word of uh, age reversal is popular. Um, transhumanism. These are all considerations about about how th- that are concerned specifically with with age, aging, death, dying. How we um, how we can stay younger longer. Um, how involved are you or interested are you in 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 those in those three sort of key terms um as it pertains to what you what you know like are you going to rush out cuz for for some context you know um i was a little surprised to hear that you're not taking um nad right uh, a little mm. surprised to hear that that some of these um, some with the, with the strongest science, um, behind them, you know, NAD, I think is, is the, is, is certainly the, the strongest scientific, um, standing of any sort of longevity drug. Uh, but then as, as it gets to your perspective of all the things that you know, um, how, how do you think of those three terms, anti-aging reverse age reversal or transhumanism? Like what, what, what really resonates for you? I use anti-aging sort of unapologetically throughout the book, and that's it's it's quite controversial sometimes in sort of the serious science of biogerontology, because there's this sort of checkered history full of quacks, and you know even now there's skin cream and stuff which claims to be anti-aging but really isn't anything of the sort. Um, and I think it's there, there is a sort of language problem here because. I, I talk t- towards the end of the sort of science part of the book that when we eventually get beyond some of these treatments, you know, the first generation of anti-aging treatments are going to be these things, these you know, treating these hallmarks that I've discussed. But I think ultimately we're going to come to think of this as, um, and this this sort of sounds a bit um, sort of new age. But it's going to come to sound, it's going to come to be restoring balance in the body, or you know, in science we call it homeostasis. And ultimately, it's basically anything that gets out of balance. If you start getting too many senescent cells, we'll remove some of those senescent cells, and that's going to you know, bring you back into the normal range. 
And so I think aging is a really unfortunate word because it's got all these connotations. I think people have a lot of associations with it. They think of it as a sort of natural process or they might think of it as a um, something, you know, something to be aspired to, to age well, to become wiser, to, you know, have kids, have grandkids, you know, gain standing in the world and all that kind of thing. You know, it's not entirely a bad process and it's not a purely biological process. either. There's a lot of psychology and all sorts of other stuff that goes into it. So it's a really tricky sort of field of language because, you know, when you say you want to cure aging, which is something that I say, you know, people sometimes look at you a bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> and that's because it sounds like you're trying to cure a natural process. What I'm interested in doing you know, I don't think that, you know, things like accruing wisdom is not a bad thing, but becoming at more risk of disease, becoming frail, becoming less independent are unambiguously bad things. And so I've ended up, you know, adopting that word aging and adopting that word anti-aging. But you have got to be aware that these things do come with sort of wider social baggage, I think. And I'm not sure that there's an, a simple way to square that circle. Because mm -hmm. if you want to explain this concept to someone in five minutes, you've got to call it aging. You've got to say what we, you know, aging causes all these diseases. We want to cure this thing called aging. If you want to explore, you know, explain this to someone over the course of a book, I eventually get to the point of saying that we're going to call these treatments uh, reversal of loss of homeostasis, but you don't want to call it that. <laughs> if you're saying you know, in your first five minutes, when you're chatting to someone's mum, that's not how you're going to try and pitch the idea, is it? Right. So that's, that's the sort of anti-aging side of things. Age reversal. Again, it's thrown around a lot by, you know, various people peddling various pills and potions in this day and age but i think it's a viable idea because you know if you remove senescent cells from a mouse from a human what you're doing is you're taking an aspect of the aging process and you are reversing it because you know if you measure your age by the percentage of your cells in a particular organ that are senescent and then that percentage goes down then in that respect at least your age has been reversed mm. and i think you know, there's a lot of talk about slowing aging versus reversing aging. And I think it becomes a bit of a semantic distinction at some point, because, you know, the fact is that if you remove all, a lot of the senescent cells from a mouse, you do reverse that aspect of its aging process. Ultimately, you probably only, in inverted commas, slow its overall degeneration with age. You, you know, there aren't many things that are made better, but a lot of things are slowed down. But I think as we get better at slowing, we're going to you know, sort of you know, tip over the edge into reversing. I think it's, it's, really, it's really hard to draw a hard line between you know, something that only slows down the aging process and something that reverses it. So I'm very happy to talk about age reversal. I don't think there's anything we have that can do that for humans now, but I don't think it's a, you know, there's nothing wrong with the term implicitly. And transhumanism, that's a fascinating one. That's, um, it's not a word I use at all in the book, and it's something that I've obviously read quite a lot about. And I think the sort of goals of transhumanism in as far as it's to sort of um, you know, emancipate humans beyond our biological foibles. And, you know, what we want to do, ultimately, the reason I care about aging is because I want to get rid of as much suffering as possible. Mm. And the reason you want to get rid of that suffering is so that humans have more time to, you know, ultimately, I, I love science, and I love reading about and understanding the world, other people love art or music or whatever it is they're into. You know, you want to be able to give people space to flourish, basically. And that can be a whole variety of different things. And to the extent that that's what transhumanism is about, I'm fully on board. But the problem is that when you talk to people about transhumanism, they often think about, you know, brain uploading and colonizing the universe and that kind of stuff. And again, none of which I'm hugely opposed to. Um, but I just feel like that stuff can all sound a bit weird um, in a way that intervening in our health and trying to improve the health of human beings doesn't so i think it's a bit of a, again it's a bit of a semantic issue it's just a word that's got a load of different social connotations attached i didn't particularly want to you know i, I wanted to try and make the case that this idea of curing aging is is in many ways really uncontroversial it's just a natural extension of modern medicine because mm. all that modern medicine you know if you're trying to cure cancer if you're trying to cure hiv if you're trying to cure malaria these are all things we try and do and what they will do is they'll make people live healthier for longer and what curing aging would do is make people live healthier for longer as well. So I just see it as a natural extension of the research with the medicine we're already doing. And I think attaching a label like transhumanism to it, while it may be accurate and while I may support quite a lot of the goals of the movement, I think it just sort of puts you in a, in certain certain circles, it can put you in a sort of, uh, sort of more freaky category of what's out there and make everything sound a bit weird. And that's something that I, I wanted to get away from. But yeah, as I say, I support quite a lot of the ideas. When you, um, when you first... Re released uh the book in the uk um what what's what were some of the because this, this is a question that i like to ask folks is uh what sort of criticisms do people have what sort of um besides semantics because you know people who aren't on the in the know are gonna say come on like getting older without getting old like come on that's your that's that's quackery but for those of us that uh, are our understanding of, of how this works and, and who, have, who are following along and shaking their head with us while they watch or listen to this episode, um, when you release, first released the book, like what sort of criticism did you receive? Like what, where did people find objections? Where did people try to tear down the work that you were doing? 
I think the most common objections are, are sort of ethical, long-term, social, mm. political kind of objections. Mm. And I, it, it, this is something I could talk to you about for an hour because I find it really like genuinely fascinating. That, and this this sort of does actually come back a bit to the semantics we were talking about, although you, uh, <laughs> you said that, you know, not to mention that. Because I think when you talk about curing ageing, people really put that in a separate sort of moral, ethical, social, medical category to something like curing cancer, even though, as I said, the goals are effectively all the same. It's people living longer, healthier lives. And so often what I'd find um, back in the days when we could go to dinner parties and weddings and that sort of stuff, the first thing that someone would ask me when I said I was writing a book on aging was, oh God, you know, what are we going to do with all the people? Aren't we going to have a massively overpopulated planet? And it's, it was surprisingly rare to get a question on, oh, you know, how do you look after your own health or, you know, how do you think we're going to achieve this medical breakthrough? Almost always the question is something about overpopulation or something about, you know, won't you get bored with all those extra years, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and so I, I just find it really fascinating because imagine that I'd gone to that you know, same wedding and said, oh, you know, I'm working on a book on cancer research about how, you know, uh, these, these new CAR T cell therapies are going to revolutionize the way that we can treat cancer literally nobody would say oh no now we've got all these you know octogenarian cancer survivors weighing down the planet aren't right. we going to have environmental disaster but if, as soon as you mention aging then it sort of unlocks an entirely different part of people's brains and they've got all these sort of ethical questions that come along with it um and the most common answer i give to all of these questions the one that's sort of the catch-all regardless of what you get asked whether it's about you know inequality of access or overpopulation or dictators is to switch the question around and to say, imagine we lived in a world where one of these problems that you're really concerned about was huge. And let's take overpopulation. You know, there are 20 billion people on the planet Earth. Climate change is ravaging the planet. We're abusing all the rainforests. We've got huge, huge amounts of land being used. We're polluting everything. What would you reach for to try and solve that problem? And I would argue that aging is the very last thing you'd go for. Like, imagine you're all living you know very very long lives and excellent health would you say okay the issue is we need to get rid of some people well the first thing is i'd say before you get rid of the people you should try and reduce your carbon footprint you should try and reduce the land use that you're using by changing the food that you eat you should try and you know reduce the pollution by changing the ways that you manufacture things and the way that you consume goods in your society if you'd finally exhausted all of those things and you're like okay there's literally no option we are going to have to kill five billion people would you do that with a process of gradual deterioration over decades during which they lose their independence, they lose their mind potentially, mm. and they get these horrible diseases, things like cancer, things like heart disease. They don't just kill you, you know, in your sleep painlessly. They cause years or maybe even decades of suffering that goes along with all that other stuff that's happening at the same time. And I just think the answer is absolutely no in answer to all of these questions. You'd never invent aging to solve any of these problems. Right. So why is it that we're happy to stand by and let aging you know, quote unquote, solve these problems, which by the way, it doesn't. That's a sort of a second answer to the question is whether or not aging actually helps very much. But it just seems crazy to me that people would be willing to let, you know, billions of people suffer and die in order to solve what are often problems that aging isn't really contributing hugely to. Hmm. Wow. All right. Let's keep going on this because this, this, is, this is very fascinating to me too. Yeah. When you, when you pose the question like that, when you're talking about cancer, you know, cure for cancer or you know, let's keep it even more topical, like the cure cure for COVID and people, uh, people are going to celebrate you, you know, you're going to get seven Nobel Peace Prizes and, um, you know, be, be the hero of planet Earth. Um, but, but when you're talking about people keeping people alive, <laughs> which is the same thing, their, mm -hmm. their, their mind shifts. Um, what, because you've thought about this a lot, because you've faced this question a lot, what do you think about I know this isn't a book about human psychology, but what do you think of, about the way that we think about humanity or, or, or aging or even death um, makes so many people jump, make that jump and, and have that objection? It is really fascinating. I have scratched my head about this and I don't, I don't claim to have all the answers, but I feel like it's because all of us have, have over, we've over, not just over civilizational time, not just over our lives, but over like evolutionary time we've had the ability to come to terms with aging because every ancestor of the human race has aged and therefore our whole society is just built around this fact that you will grow older and you will get more frail and you know whether that was you know people in prehistoric times you know scratching their heads about what evil you know gods might have been causing this particular malady or whether it's in modern times where you know we've got hospitals we've got pensions we've got nursing homes we've got this whole sort of infrastructure in our society that's built around the understanding that we're all going to get older and we're all going to lose our independence we're all going to get ill we've just got so um 
we just got so used to the idea we come to terms with it and we just accept it as a natural facet of life and there's this there's this real distinction between aging and the diseases that aging causes right because you know age you, you used to be able to write died of old age on a death, death certificate and that's no longer legal i think in most places in the world wait a minute because, wait a minute really is that yeah because they, I mean, imagine, imagine someone died in their 90s, in the 1930s. Yeah. There probably wouldn't have been a huge amount of point trying to right. like scratch your head about exactly why they didn't. So doctor could just write died of old age. Uh-huh. But now you, you have to say, oh, you know, they died of cancer or they died of coronavirus or they died of whatever it was. Um, and I think that that shift the sort of flip side of it is that now we associate death with being of a particular cause sure. and so if you're a politician and and often these things are because of you know things that have happened to politicians relatives and stuff like that the reason that these you know initiatives get started for funding science and stuff like that um you know it might be that a particular member of your family has a particular kind of brain cancer so you know you, you put some money you, you as a politician put some money into researching brain cancer or maybe one of your family's had alzheimer's and again that's a specific disease mm-hmm. but we just somehow uh, we, we put all the actual the aging process that gives rise to those diseases in the background and I really don't know like what exactly has caused that from a social sort of social science social history point of view but it really does seem to be the case that we we put those in very very separate categories and that's from both the science you know scientific research point of view and from an ethical philosophical point of view as well yeah <laughs> fascinating fascinating I, I mean, I, I guess I, I sort of um, intuitively knew that that cause of death um, had to be or, or is largely attributed to something now. I mean, even a generation ago, I'm 37 and talking about being, you know, dying of old age was was a pretty common thing. And I guess now as I get older and older, that becomes less and less. It's pointed to, you know, an organ failure or a cardiac event or something like that. Well, it also doesn't help that the third leading cause of death in North America is um, (laughs) medical medical intervention, which um, can be specifically attributed somewhere, you know, to something like this person got, you know, an infection or this person, you know, et cetera. But I, that, that's, that's really, that's really fascinating to me. (laughs) I hadn't really thought about that. Um, What does this say about, um, how we think about death. Um, there, there is, there is an inextricable connection between how we age or not age, getting older without getting old, and death. Is, is there any part of you? And I don't mean to put you in the spot, but I, but I do kind of. Um, <laughs> uh, what, what is, what is the connection that you've made, or your sort of personal interest in, in avoiding death? I just think, and it's strange, death is sort of, the ability of age, of something like curing aging, to put off death, is almost a side effect. And that's because the things that kill you are ultimately the things that cause you to suffer while you're alive. So if you think about cancer, it's a nasty thing. You know, it, it, it invades part of your body, it metastasizes around your body, the treatment for it, the chemotherapy you're going to get is grueling. And so, you know, this is something that you're going to live with for years, you're constantly going to be looking over your shoulder. And it it, it takes your um you know, it takes away your independence because it means that you're less able to do the things that you love doing and i think that you know i want to see a world without cancer without dementia without heart disease without all of these things and if none of those things exist or at least they've been you know pushed back to much much later in life as a result of treatments that can slow or reverse the aging process then people won't die and it's not necessarily that i'm you know terrified about death itself um i don't you know I, I don't have lots of sleepless nights because I'm, you know, concerned about winking out of existence. So that's, you know, obviously is sometimes a concern. Um, but I feel like the most important thing to do is try and reduce suffering. Mm. And the sort of the knock-on effect of that is to push death further and further back into the future. So it's a strange one because I think a lot of people think, um, you know, you've got to go sometime. And that that certainly makes sense to me. I think being you know, terrified of death would be pretty counterproductive as a human being, pretty yeah. crippling. Right. But at the same time, I, I you know, sort of argue the, other, the point the other way around. I do think death is bad. In the sense that even if it doesn't affect you personally, I mean, you know, you can see the argument you, you don't exist, you're not around to you know, experience any, any suffering. I, I didn't exist for you know, billions of years in the history of the universe, didn't cause me any problems, etc., etc. <laughs> but it does cause a huge problem for those people that are left behind. It's you know, incredibly sad for your family, your friends, your community um, having to say goodbye to you. And there's this um, ancient African proverb that one of the philosophers I spoke to for the book quoted, which is that I, it's something like every time uh, a man dies, a library burns just got all these you know years decades 
maybe a century of accumulated experience of wisdom of knowledge um and it can be everything from the incredibly sort of trivial on a global scale like you know how friends and families not you know all these different sort of stories or it can be you know maybe you're the leading researcher in your particular field or maybe you're a songwriter who's just got this incredible power to connect with hundreds of thousands or millions of people and that genius and all that knowledge and wisdom and personality and everything just vanishes Mm. and i think you know although you know the, the there's, there's, you know, the death and suffering are to some extent sefer- separable. I think if there were less death in the world, that would still be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> I, like, I like your approach there. I like your approach. Yeah. I'm curious. I mean, um, they are so tightly tied to one another, um, aging and death. Um, how old do you think that we're going to be able to live? Uh, you know, I, I'm, it's, it's, it's increasingly part of sort of the biohacking community, that I live in, um, talking about longevity. Um, you know, I certainly take lots of different things. You know, I went through a senolytics protocol to, to rid my body of, of, uh, of senescent cells, uh, very experimental. Uh, and, uh, I've done peptides and exosomes and stem cells injections, you know, for, for physical ailments, not necessarily to, so I can live long, but, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated with aging and I'm fascinated with people that live a long time, you know, and there's, there's these accounts of, you know, Mr. Li Ching Yuan, who supposedly lived to 256 years old, and it was confirmed by the Chinese government and confirmed by like the New York, the New York Times in the early 30s, talks about how he lived on uh, herbs and ginseng and rice wine and long walks and you sleep like sleep like a dog and uh, play like a or walk like a pigeon or something like that. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. Uh, who knows how old he really was. But f- the fact of the matter is he lived a very, very long time. And there's photos of them, et cetera. So I, I'm curious about what, you know, maybe for this generation or, or, or soon enough, um, how long do you think that we're going to be able to, to, to live in the future? It's a really hard question to answer. <laughs> I know, and I there's, know. There, there's an extent to which I'm like a really boring scientist and I never give any like solid numerical predictions. I'm not going to say that people, you know, in their 30s today are going to live to, you know, 157. However, the re- the reason it's really hard to predict is because it's an exciting time to be alive. So, you know, I don't want to like rain on the parade of this sort of stuff because the the, the way that we're going to cure aging, the way that we're going to end up living it or, or, you know, even if we don't get all the way to the cure, the way that we're going to end up living a very long time is because we're sort of going to bootstrap our efforts. So, you know, if you're in your 30s now, for example, and obviously, you know, people are younger, people are older in different situations, but say you're in your 30s now. You've got at least 50 years of life left, even assuming nothing remarkable happens to, you know, human life expectancy to anti-aging. And actually, we know that life expectancy is continually increasing. If you look at the uh, leading country around the world, life expectancy, and that, that obviously varies by year, but that life expectancy, that sort of best best in world life expectancy goes up by about three months every year. And it's been doing that, you know, reliably tick-tock since about 1850. So we've got this incredibly long-run trend of getting three months of free life expectancy every year. Mm-hmm. So that means that probably our date of death, you know, maybe it'll be something like our 90s or something like that. Who knows? However, we've then got the possibility of all this anti-aging biotechnology. And so senescent drugs, sorry, senolytic drugs, killing these senescent cells are already in clinical trials for humans. So I think they, you know, it's only going to be a few years before they start handing those out to people for specific diseases. If they're safe, if they're effective, they could get broadened out to the more general population and maybe people start prescribing them off label, um, depending on how keen you are. You know, if you're at the sort of biohacker end of things, as you say, you've already tried some of this stuff. Maybe if you're, you know, like me, a bit more cautious, not quite a biohacker, but equally, you know, want to try some of these things, you might try and convince your doctor to, as I say, give some of you, give it, give you some off label maybe if you're super cautious you'll wait for the absolute you know gold standard solid trials to be in or whatever nonetheless the point is that by taking these drugs hopefully you can add a few years to your healthy lifespan and that then buys you a few more years for whatever drugs uh, or treatments are coming down the pike next to be developed and lots of this stuff isn't very far away so you know we talked about gene therapy and stem cell therapy um you know those things aren't going to be happening for most people as a sort of general anti-aging treatment in the next five years but I think you'd be crazy to bet against them happening in the next 20 or 30 years. And like I said, you know, we've potentially got 50 years left. And then when you think about, you know, what medicine is going to look like at that time in, um, I've sort of already alluded to this, but in the final science chapter of the book, I have this section at the end talking about reprogramming aging. And that's this bit where I talk about, uh, trying to restore homeostasis to the body. And when I was writing that, I was writing about the idea that we can, um, 
we've got huge, huge computer models that are being developed, that will be developed, sorry, uh, that are going to take these enormous quantities of biological data that we're generating. So we've got things like genome sequences. The first uh, sequencing of the human genome was a multi-billion dollar enormous project. Right. And now you can get your genome sequenced for $1,000, probably less, and they can do it in an afternoon. Yeah. And that means we've got vastly more biological data than we've ever had at any point in human history by orders and orders of magnitude. And it's not just genomes, you know, we can look at all the proteins inside a cell, we can look at populations of cells. We're really starting to be able to do these enormous, they're called omics studies, so genomics, proteomics, mm -hmm. that look in an unbiased way at every single facet of a particular part of an organism or a particular cell. And we're also seeing this enormous increase in computing power. So, you know, we've had Moore's law where computing power has been doubling every couple of years since the 60s or something like that. That slowed down a bit, but our algorithms are sort of enhancing our ability to catch up. So we've got things like neural networks now. Only a few months ago, we had uh, DeepMind. Um, I'm going I'm to oversimplify this in a way that will annoy protein biologists. They, they say they solved the protein folding problem. They actually solved an aspect of it, and it's a bit more complicated. But whatever. The point is that they've got the ability to take a neural network, which can then... Uh, you know, it, it can work out how biological system works. It can work out how these proteins sort of go through this origami process that's been an absolute um, head scratcher for biologists for 50 years. And they've made a huge jump with a single model by applying this uh, deep learning to it. And all of these things point to the fact that we are going to come to a point where we can integrate this huge amount of data with these huge computer models and come up with ways to intervene in our biology that are so much cleverer than just killing senescent yeah, cells. Right. We'll be able to do something that really optimizes, that trades off all these different side effects. You know, maybe there are some places where you don't want to delete the senescent cells. Maybe there are some places where you want to change the length of the telomeres a bit, but not so much. Or, you know, whatever... It, and there are going to be things that are going to be impossible to describe in human language because they're effectively going to be our computers programming our bodies. Mm. And as I was writing this, I was thinking this really is sort of swerving into the transhumanism that I don't want to mention. And it sounds like some sort of you know crazy, crazy far future stuff. But then I thought a bit more about it. And I was like, well, actually, if you look at what's happened over the last 50 years, you know, it was only in the 1950s that we discovered the structure of DNA. And now we've got this incredible genome sequencing. Um, we've already talked about Moore's law and computing power shooting up in that intervening time. We've got loads of other technologies on the horizon. We're going to be developing new kinds of computer chips. We have new materials that we can use for computing. We have quantum computers. We're going to develop whole new kinds of machine learning. I think you'd be a fool to bet against the next 50 years seeing that those sorts of technologies develop and seeing these models of human biology come to fruition. And as I said, we can expect to hopefully live you know, another 50, 60 years, even without any advances in biotechnology that are significant. And then you add in the fact that we're hopefully going to have benefited from the first analytics. There might be drugs like metformin that can slow down aging. We might have had a couple of, you know, sort of the low hanging fruit in terms of the stem cell treatments, or you know, maybe we've had a couple of gene therapies that are, you know, the, the, the easy stuff, not the, not the really, really complicated nitty gritty reprogramming biology, but you know, maybe you'll have had some risk genes taken away or had a, you know, a couple of extra genes added that can degrade a certain kind of cellular waste that your body can't currently handle. What, you know, whatever these treatments turn out to be over the next 20 30 40 years if you can then live long enough to uh, benefit from those first you know sort of baby steps systems biology models maybe you can live another 10 years longer still mm. and then that gives us 10 years to enhance these models and so on and so on and so on so it could be that you know we live a solid 100 years and you know we're, we're pretty healthy and you know analytics mean that we get cancer a bit later and we, you know we might get a bit less dementia or it could be that if all of this stuff manages to cause some kind of exponential growth we could live vastly longer mm. and it's very hard to put a ceiling on it if we are fortunate enough for that to happen because if we can slow down and reverse aging sufficiently to buy us that huge amount more time then who knows how far medicine could go in the lifetimes of you know whether it's people alive today or the next generation or the generation after that it could happen quite soon. And what my sort of bet hedging way of answering this question is always to say this is going to happen in time for most people alive today. And what exactly this, you know, what exactly the, the this is that's going to happen yeah. is open to a bit of question. But I think we're at a hugely exciting time and it's because of that that we have to be so uncertain. Yeah, good. Uh, I want to live to 120. I want to get, I want to, get to 120. Uh, and I figure by the time I get to 60 or 70, there's going to be, I'm going to have enough money to afford the really expensive treatments. Um, I will have dialed in my nutrition and so forth that, you know, the calorie restriction, the fasting, the, you know, the love that I have in my family, the, the, the reduction in stress, like, um, you know, the, the really advanced treatments, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, you know, those are the things we're going to be doing, you know, twice a week or whatever. <laughs> so that by the time I'm 60 or 70, um, and I've got grandkids that um, I'm going to be able to to really be strong and powerful and 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 youthful and vibrant um, through homeostasis uh, in into one into my 120s. Uh, if you had to if you had to pick a number, what would your number be? 
I wouldn't pick a number. <laughs> I know. As long I, as I I'm, <laughs> as long as I'm healthy and happy yeah. and have you know people I care about around me, and yeah. I've got so much to do. I don't want to, and I think this is a really fascinating thing. There are there are lots of surveys uh, where uh, there aren't actually lots. There are a couple of surveys where people ask, uh, they basically ask, you know, how long would you like to live? And what most people pick is current life expectancy plus about 10 years because mm-hmm. everyone wants to have a good innings, but nobody wants to sort of live into a nursing home into their 110s. Then, you know, if you're a bit more ambitious, you might pick 120. But if you're going to make it to 120, you know, if, I, I feel like if biotechnology is good enough that we live to 120, yeah. we're not likely to want to either want to or like have to stop there. Sure. Because, you know, if, if you can live that long, that's that's, you know, say you're 35 now. Um, how long is that? It's another 80, 85 years. You know, what on earth is technology, biotechnology going to look like in 85 years time? I very much hope it'll be able to save whatever, you know, healthy-ish 120 year old looks like at sure, that point. Yeah. So <laughs> I, that's what, that's why I don't put a number on it. And, uh, you know, so that's the sort of medical reason I don't put a number on it. And the, the personal reason is I've just got so much to do. I'm happy to keep going as long as I'm fit and healthy. Nice. <laughs> good. Good. I figured I'd push a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I think I think the concept of homeostasis is really important, and and the the goal of this podcast specifically is to is to exhaust all of the free resources and then all of the cheap resources, as then and then growing in complexity, right? So intermittent fasting. You know, you're actually going to save money by intermittent fasting. Yeah. You're gonna, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to all these myriad benefits from, um, from eating one or two meals a day. Um, uh, breath. Are you breathing effectively through your nose most of the time? Right. Are you, are you having stress reduction protocols? Are you, are you detoxing effectively, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, all of that is to get to a homeostasis to let the body do what it wants to do. It's not about, it's not about enhancement or reduction. It's about just like finding that sweet spot and finding that sweet spot is growing in complexity because we, what we know about how cells talk to each other, you know, the gut brain connection, the liver and the gall, you know, the gallbladder and all these different connections that, that are really challenging. And, um, um, there's not really a question here, but, but that really resonates with me because homeostasis is what is going to like, if we, if we just stay in that sweet spot, our body knows what to do and knows how to function properly. It knows how to age less, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, it's amazing that our in, our bodies in our twenties and thirties we are you know, we we literally go for decades with a as I said like your odds of death in your twenties and thirties are less than one in a thousand a year. That means like the 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 sort of precision with which your body is maintaining homeostasis is just astonishing. It's like you know balancing a pencil on its tip for like three or four decades, <laughs> and yet somehow our biological systems have evolved to be able to do that. So if we can just nudge them back into that state, then you know we can stay living healthily for a very long time. Yeah, I love it. Uh, based on on that same note of, um, and a couple more questions before we, before we take it, take it home, um, based on that sort of idea that you should do the free stuff, uh, or the stuff that saves you money first and sort of grow in complexity of treatments and so forth. Um, what are maybe three to five things that, that you, that you think are kind of no brainers for, um, aging slow or, or, or reducing aging that, that everybody can do and everybody should do? The first one is absolutely definitely stop smoking. If you smoke, and I suspect not many people listening to this podcast will honestly, but it's just, it's so astronomically bad for you. And since we're talking about things that are free or cheap, like it will save you so much money, especially, you know, in the UK, rightly, cigarettes are taxed to the nines. And so, you know, you're going to save, you know, loads and loads of money and massively improve your life. Experience. You know, you can potentially add like 10 years to your life and 10 years to your healthy life as well. And there's basically nothing else that can do that. So that's, that is number one, like the absolute king of all health suggestions. Mm-hmm. Um, exercise, I think is something that's really, really important. And I, I'm sure you know, you talked a lot about all sorts of different things, but I think the most neglected aspect of exercise is probably strength training. Mm-hmm. And this is something that surprised me when researching the book is that it seems that an awful lot of the age-related decline in muscle mass and the age-related decline in muscle strength is reversible. And there are even these amazing studies where they give people in their 90s a program of strength training. And what they find is that after a few months of doing this sort of resistance training stuff, they can walk further. They're just a bit stronger. You know, they have pretty substantial benefits, even though they're that late in life, because your muscles do have this latent ability. So a significant part of our loss of strength is just basically loss of use or lack of use. So I really feel like exercise and in particular is often quite neglected. You know, we often talk about cardio. You can really feel how that's benefiting your circulatory system and your lungs. But don't forget your muscles. Those are really important, too. Um, 
eating wise, I've flirted with fasting, but I just find it so hard. <laughs> and I really think that the again, this is me being like perhaps perhaps I'm asking for the evidence to be too watertight, but I really feel like the evidence is not a hundred percent there for whether it's going to work for humans. Um it absolutely works in so many species. It works in, you know, yeast, it works in worms, it works in flies, it works in spiders, dogs probably monkeys the experiments are a bit uncertain and then all the only trials that we've got in humans inevitably are quite short term you know they, they do it for a year or two and people definitely get healthier but the question is does that translate into living longer hmm. and for me um maybe i'm just a very grouchy hungry person so i just find it very hard to stick to but th- you know, th- there are some disbenefits as well there's supposed to be you know, there's a bit of an impact on immunity potentially some of the people in the trials have had to drop out because they've noticed their bones have started to get thinner or they've started to get anemia um, it has an impact on your sex drive. The people who do it report that hunger never goes away, which is really frustrating because you might sort of hope that after a few months of eating less, then you know your body will sort of adapt to that new normal. But you just stay hungry all the time, which I think is the aspect that I really couldn't cope with. Um, there's this actually a joke. You find that scientists are a cynical lot. And there's a joke in the biogerontology community that in, intermittent fasting or calorie restriction won't make you live any longer, but it will certainly feel like longer. <laughs> yeah, um, right. But equally, like I've, I've got a huge amount of sympathy for people who do do it. And the reason being, as I was researching that chapter, um, it actually ended up not being a chapter. It ended up going in all sorts of places around the books. It, it touches on so many parts of the biology. But um, you just feel like there must be some optimal diet out there because there are so many experiments that have tried so many different things. And this dietary restriction effect is, as I said before, just so consistent across the animal kingdom. And we know that some of the sort of biological mechanisms that, um, that cause it to work are also conserved. So we have the same, you know, proteins inside our cells as a yeast cell has that enact this dietary restriction. So I really feel like there's something out there, but there was just nothing that really grabbed, you know, if, if I knew I could get an extra 10 years of life by fasting, I think I could probably like overcome my grumpiness. <laughs> but given that I'm really not sure what the benefits are going to be and that I like food, <laughs> sort of, that's that's how I've ended up coming down here. That's not to say I won't change my mind. I'm really open to evidence, but I'm just not 100% sure about actually, you know, going as far as fasting. Um, so is that three? Um, what am I going to say is number four? I think number four is going to be one of the ones that surprised me, uh, which is brush your teeth. And there are obviously good reasons from a sort of dental standpoint to do sure. that. Sure, yeah, that's a good idea. There's... There's, there's quite good evidence that it doesn't just reduce your dental bills and stop decay, but it can also reduce your risk of heart disease and your risk of dementia. And the dementia link is a bit more tenuous. We're not 100 percent sure. But the heart disease one seems relatively solid. Hmm. And the rationale behind this is a process called chronic inflammation, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of. This idea that as you get older, your immune system starts to get sort of set on this uh, sort of low level paranoia. Basically, it's constantly on a, a low state of alert. And that then goes on to accelerate the aging process. And if you imagine that you're someone who's got gum disease or you've got tooth decay, these are infections that are in your mouth. They're caused by bacteria. And those infections are something that your immune system finds very hard to shift. You never quite get rid of them. And that means there's this constant sort of low-level skirmish going on in your mouth. And that means there's a constant state of inflammation. And that inflammation can drive problems all around the body. And it seems to be relatively solidly linked to heart disease. So it seems that, you know, if you have bad oral health, that will go on to give you bad heart health. The dementia link could be related to inflammation. So again, you know, inflammation in the brain is something that can drive cognitive decline in dementia. But also we found that some of the bacteria that are responsible for gum disease have been found in the amyloid plaques that are the, uh, the plaques of proteins that clump together in the brains of people with Alzheimer's. Mm. So we don't know if that's cause or effect. It could be that those bacteria are just taking advantage of the sort of diseased brain and they're you know, being opportunistic and sneaking in. Or it could be that they have gone into the brain and this amyloid is acting as some kind of strange defense against the bacteria. And so maybe they're the first mover. We don't really know which way the causality lies, but again, that's enough for me to, you know, want to brush my teeth and uh, make sure that I'm, um, make sure that I'm on top of things in that department. And my final tip, I think, would be measure your heart rate and blood pressure. Hmm. And I haven't actually got a smartwatch. My wife has, so it's, you know, it's, it's not something I'm massively uh, opposed to. But I really think that the one thing they don't measure that's really, really valuable is knowing your blood pressure, hmm. because blood pressure is behind so many different diseases and illnesses. You know, heart disease is the obvious one, but it can also, again, be uh, behind dementia because it can cause high pressure uh, in your in your brain, in the blood vessels in your brain, and that can make strokes more likely, or it can cause you know thousands and thousands of really tiny, mini, mini, mini strokes that go on to cause a problem called vascular dementia. Anyway, basically, it's responsible for absolutely loads of different problems around the body but it's a completely silent problem if you've got high blood pressure you can't really feel it you can't see it you know it just doesn't have any symptoms until you develop one of these you know much more cataclysmic problems you know right. you potentially end up having a stroke so just by sticking on the blood pressure cuff 
you know, sit down, measure your blood pressure, you know, once or twice a week, maybe just keep an eye on it, make sure it's within the sort of normal range. And if it does end up going above, I think 140 over 80 is sort of the point at which you should probably, if you're getting that reading consistently, you know, go and see your doctor and have a chat with them to see if there's anything they can do. Um, the best interventions are things like diet and exercise, actually. So, you know, as long as you're following that advice relatively well, your blood pressure should stay under control. Yeah. But again, just because it's something that you can't feel, you can't sense without measuring it, I think it's really worthwhile. It's so cheap. You know, blood pressure cuffs are like, what, 20 pounds, 20, maybe 30, 40, $30, $40, $40, I don't know. But, you know, they're not expensive devices and you can use them for years and years. So I think that's a real that's a real no brainer. It's something that I was put onto by my other half, as I say, as a doctor. But I think having read about the sort of the broader aging consequences she was totally right <laughs> mm, that's cool oh those are really great those are really really great um thanks for laying those out um before i ask the final question which is a fill in the blank question uh where can people learn more about you where can they find the book etc give us all your vitals so if you want to buy the book, you can go to ageless.link and that'll give you a variety of different bookshops It's uh, available. And obviously, it's, if you just Google Ageless Andrew Steele, that'll come up as well. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Stato, which is S-T-A-T-T-O. Um, I'm also on YouTube, uh, youtube.com forward slash Dr. Andrew Steele, D-R Andrew Steele, all one word. And I'm hoping to put up a few videos, particularly about the sort of ethics stuff that isn't covered quite so much in the book, hmm. but also about all aspects of aging and the health advice. And I've just got, I've, I've got big plans, but I'm, I've been so busy. I haven't, I haven't put out a huge number of videos in the last couple of months for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure what that could possibly yeah. have been. Yeah, no, um, a comprehensive book maybe or. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, th- I think those are the places I'd recommend people go. Excellent. So the, um, this last final question is, is uh, I asked this for, for everybody. Um, it's a fill in the blank. So um, this can be based mm-hmm. on anything that, you know, specific specific to the book or, or just your experience in life in, in any way. Um, feel free to um, elaborate as much or as little as you'd like. Please fill in the blank. Everyone would benefit from knowing. The aging is a process that we can slow down and reverse. And obviously that is the whole point of my book, right? But I really think that if that fact was just understood more widely, and as I sort of said before, this is biologists, this is members of the public, you know, tell your friends, your family, when we're allowed back to bars, you know, I want this to be something that people talk about in the pub. I want it to be such common knowledge that we can't fail to do something about it. Because, you know, there is health advice that you can follow. Um, When I started, when I launched this book in the UK, it was the new year. And so I was doing a lot of New Year's resolutions. And so, you know, I I tell people about a lot of that health advice that we've just discussed very, you know, I, I pick and choose from that. But I said that perhaps the strongest, most important New Year's resolution is, uh, one that's going to sound quite weird and that is i think you should campaign for more funding for aging biology because i think that without that funding we're not going to see the developments that are going to allow us to live a long time and i think if you are already you know living a relatively optimal life you know eating relatively well getting a bit of exercise not smoking all that stuff that we talked about before the single biggest determinant of how long you live um, is going to be progress in aging biology. And so it's so important, you know, mm. contact your representatives, tell them about this, you know, maybe send them a copy of my book. And I'm not just saying this to sell books. It's because I genuinely passionately believe that if more people understood that treating aging is a thing that we should be doing as a society, as a species, then that's what's going to make all of us live longer, healthier lives. Hmm. Well said. Here, here. Tell your friends, share this episode, you know, um, tag tag both of us in Instagram posts, share this episode, get it around. I mean, this has been really eye-opening. I really like the way that you've put things together. Um, I, I like your approach and your sort of measured way and the way that which you're discussing this stuff. So uh, this has been great. Um, Dr. Steele, thank you so much for joining me today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been great fun. And scene. <laughs>